This is Incisive Decisive. Hello, and welcome to a very special extra episode of Incisive Decisive. Colin's away on a lecture tour of China, so I'm sneakily releasing a bit of extra content for you. Those of you that have listened to our first episode will know that I'm also the co-host of the Last Tuesday Project podcast, and this month we released a little something we recorded together for my Masters in Dental Law and Ethics. One of my assignments for this was to record a 10-minute podcast on ethics in dentistry. And the first 10 minutes of this are essentially the assignments as handed in. It's a little dry and a bit academic, but after this, my co-hosts Haley and Alex and I have a discussion about various ethical issues, including human rights and prescribing a homeopathy on the NHS. This, then, is the first and probably only incisive, decisive Last Tuesday Project crossover episode. It's something a bit different, and some of it's a bit technical, but don't worry. Normal service will be resumed on our normal episode, which will be out in the next few weeks. So, without further ado, here is some dental ethics. Today I'm here with Alex and Haley, and we're going to talk about biomedical ethics, specifically with a dental slant. Hello. Hello. Um, is it safe to say that you're both relatively novice to the world of biomedical ethics? Relatively would probably be an understatement. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so are we, are we talking from a base level of zero here then? Yeah, I, I'd say okay. yeah, zero would be optimistic, but carry um, on. <laughs> I would say that I'm certainly not an expert in ethics, but have an awareness of the vague principles around it. I'm a pharmacist, so we have um, medical ethics within pharmacy. Mm. And I did used to teach a little bit of ethics. Oh, really? But oh. not so much the theory behind it or anything like that, just mm-hmm. more the practical side and just really specific to medicine's information, which was what I used to work in. Okay. So what I'm going to try and do is, is go through a way of thinking about ethical issues and dilemmas in healthcare using the four principles of biomedical ethics. And what I'll do is concentrate on one of them, and then we can briefly see how they interact with each other, how they relate to different ethical theories, and how they relate to any scenarios I would like to see as a general dentist. Sounds okay? Yep. Yes, fine. Cool. So, the four principles of biomedical ethics were published by Beauchamp and Childress in the late 70s and have been developed since then. So they are respect for autonomy, which is based on the patient's right to choose what happens to them in their body. Uh, Non-maleficence, which is the sort of equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. You've got beneficence, which I'm going to be concentrating on later, which is an obligation to act for the benefit of others. And then there's justice, which concerns equality in various different forms. It's important to note that the principles that I'm going to introduce aren't supposed suppliers with answers to ethical problems, but they provide a, a framework for how to think through a variety of ethical dilemmas by emphasising the important values in healthcare. They're not an ethical theory per se, but they enable us to examine a situation which we can then frame in reference to whichever ethical theory we may subscribe to. I wanted to talk about beneficence specifically because until recently, beneficence was the primary factor in healthcare, meaning that healthcare professional chose what was the right thing to do and then just got on with it. More recently, patient autonomy has risen in importance. And now we see that patients are much more involved in their healthcare decisions. And I'll come back to that later on. 
So what is beneficence? Well, you can think about it in several ways. It could be the removal of disease or harm, or you could look at it as providing the best treatment possible. However, you may want to measure what's best. Alternatively, you could look at beneficence as preventing disease or harm, or even the promoting of certain benefits. In reality, it's all of the above relative to the situation that you find yourself in. Mm. If we consider ethical theories, then we find beneficence plays a central role in utilitarianism, which is a consequentialist ethical theory. Consequentialism states that the moral values of an action is determined by the consequences of that action and solely by that. The means don't matter, only the outcome. This is modified slightly in utilitarianism to state that the right action is the one that produces the maximum benefit. It's about producing the greatest good. And it's from this space that David Hume and Francis Hutchison developed their common morality theory. And that's the idea that we as humans have this intrinsic knowledge of what's right and that beneficence in itself is morally right. The main alternative to consequentialism is deontology. This claims that moral value and consequences are independent of each other. Or to put it another way, the moral value of an action is dependent on the action itself. So to contrast these, a strict utilitarian may say that it's morally acceptable to kill a prisoner and use their organs to save a number of people via transplantation. For example, the greatest good could be served by saving five people's lives by sacrificing one person. Yep. A deontologist, though, may rule this out because killing someone itself is morally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, Immanuel Kant believed that it was always morally wrong to lie. So you could theoretically have the situation where I've got a shotgun and I've arrived at your house, Haley, looking for Alex, who's in your kitchen, for example. And if you are a strict Kantist, when I ask you where Alex is, you have to tell me no matter what the consequences are. A utilitarian view is often taken when you're looking at healthcare on a large scale. For example, when you're considering government funding, then you're looking at the final outcome as a measure of success. And for better or worse, the single person matters less. This is in direct contradiction to Immanuel Kant's version of deontology. This Kant suggested that people should not be used as means to an end, but should be considered as an ends by themselves. So that's a brief outline of a couple of ethical theories. Are we still on the same page? Just about, yeah. Yeah, just about. about. Okay, good. So let's look at beneficence in relation to the other principles. I mentioned briefly earlier that the balance between autonomy and beneficence has altered over time. Beauchamp and Childress intended each of the principles to be as important as each other, and they are, but much like an animal farm, autonomy is often considered to be more equal. It's now considered that respect for patient autonomy trumps beneficence when it comes to making treatment decisions. And that follows the legal guidelines for gaining consent as well. Essentially, a patient is allowed to make what a healthcare professional may consider is a bad decision. Or if there's more than one option for treatment available to a patient, then as long as the patient is well informed of the risks and benefits of those treatment, or what may happen if they decide to decline that treatment, then they should be free to choose between those options. They have the autonomy, the self-rule of what happens to their body. Previously, this hasn't been the case. And when beneficence is given priority over patient autonomy, we get paternalism. And we saw that until relatively recently, and we still do to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. Paternalism can be divided up into either soft or hard. Soft paternalism occurs when someone acts against a patient's autonomy because that patient is judged to not have been able to give valid consent. 
there may be many reasons for this, but it's often because they've been given poor information about their treatment options, or they have an illness which prevents them from making a rational decision regarding their treatment options. In contrast, hard paternalism occurs when the patient's autonomy is disrespected, despite them being fully informed and aware of their actions. You can see either of these forms of paternalism in action in cases, for example, where someone tries to kill themselves. It may be due to severe depression or addiction, which a healthcare professional may suggest reduces their capacity to think rationally. Or it may be because that person has a debilitating illness, which is likely to deteriorate over time, and the patient has decided they don't want to carry on with their life. In either case, there's an argument to be made from a point of beneficence that healthcare professionals should be allowed to intervene against the patient's judgment. As patient autonomy has become viewed as more important, though, the attitude of doctor knows best has declined. We do still see that a large number of patients will defer to expert knowledge, but we need to remember that we're not the ones on the receiving end of the treatment, and what's best is relative. Non-maleficence and beneficence are often seen as two sides of the same coin, but in reality it's a bit more complicated than that. Do no harm is a more complicated statement than it initially appears. I'm a surgeon, my degree is Bachelor of Dental Surgery, but it could be argued that every time I treat patients, I'm harming them. For example, by removing a tooth, even though that tooth was causing them pain. If that harm is consented for, though, and, and an overall benefit is gained, it's this which we consider when looking at non-maleficence. No harm means there should be an overall benefit to the treatment. It's also worth thinking about who we have a duty of beneficence and non-maleficence to. In general, I have a duty not to harm anyone. But does that mean that I have a duty to help everyone? Peter Singer specifically distinguishes promoting good from preventing harm and insists that we have a moral duty to prevent bad things from happening and an obligation to assist when people are in need. This makes sense when looking from a group perspective. For example, as a country, we send aid overseas for those in need. But from a healthcare perspective, we can't reasonably be expected to help everyone. We can help our patients, and here we see a parallel with the legal concept of duty of care. But how beneficent do we have to be? Do we, as healthcare professionals, have an ethical and moral duty to return all our patients to full health or to extend their life indefinitely? Or can we only remove disease and have patients continue with a reasonable standard of life? You could argue that each and every person deserves the absolute best treatment available, but in this country at least, the funding for healthcare is finite and the number of healthcare professionals is limited. Is it just to allow a small number of people to have expensive drugs, which will only extend their life for a short period of time? And is it ethically acceptable to be able to circumvent this limitation by paying? So, how does this relate to dentistry? I believe that you can only have a truly beneficent profession if you have an evidence-based profession. If you have a variety of treatment options available to present to your patient, and you're trying to do the best you can for a patient, then unless you know which treatment is likely to produce the best result for the patient in question, by whichever measure of best you choose to use, then you will always have a degree of uncertainty. If, however, you have high-quality research to back up these options, you can pass that information on to the patient. This not only increases the beneficence to the patient, but also increases the autonomy of the patient as they are better informed of the treatment options available. In fact, I believe it could be argued that you only have an ethical dental profession if you have an evidence-based dental profession. How do we apply this to general practice? Well, the most obvious way is for us to keep up to date with the current high quality research and encourage others to do so. 
To help with this, we should be encouraging open access publishing of research, as well as increasing the amount of research done in practice, which we should all consider contributing to. We should also be trying to increase the quality of research produced, as large amounts of the available research is of poor quality or outdated. And finally, we should constantly be on the lookout for ways to improve our practice, taking the whole of the evidence base into consideration by taking a Bayesian-style approach to adaptation of techniques and procedures. If we can move to a more evidence-based profession, we move to a more beneficent profession to the benefit of our patients and to ourselves. That's it. I'm done. Yay! Thank you very much. So, so we have a little talk about that now. Yeah. What do we think about it? So, a thing that occurs to me, and the question mm. that I referred to earlier, is that there are a lot of words in that, and a lot mm. of big mm. words that are difficult mm. to say, and mm. there are a lot yes. of names, and a lot of people saying this, and someone else saying that, and it's... Yeah. There's obviously a very large crossover with philosophy. Oh, yes, very much so. Yeah. And very, I wonder so. just how much that puts off people from deep diving yeah. or going down the ethics rabbit hole because particularly healthcare professionals or sort of scientific people who might take one look at it and go, oh, that's all fluff. I don't, none of that's relevant to me because there's all these words and all these people you've yeah. never yeah. heard of, et cetera. So I wonder how what impact that has. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously ethics and ethical theories aren't necessarily related to healthcare, medicine, pharmacy, dentistry, whatever. Mm. And I think that's why these principles were were originally developed, or uh, no, the Beauchamp and Childress they they wanted to, as far as I can tell have the non-ethicists able to make quick ethical decisions or not quick, but, you know, quite, quite well-based ethical decisions because no one wants to think about, well, I'm a strict utilitarian. Therefore the consequences of this action are the only thing that really matters. What they want to think about is what's best for your patient. Yeah. And with these four principles, although they're not ideal, not ideal by a long shot, the idea is that you can actually work through a situation systematically and get to an answer. It's not telling you what to do, but it's it's giving you the way to think about it. Yeah, which is really useful. Really useful. Alex is a as a complete ethical novice. I don't mean yeah. that in any kind of um, no, no, no. <laughs> to, to any absolutely accurate. What do you think? It's the individual points all make sense, but I mean, I've been inclined to agree with Haley, and it's the same sort of thing as I know that we've discussed amongst mm. ourselves in the mm. past. Trying to get people interested in ethics or evidence, anything evidence based, is tricky because it feels like it's a lot of hard work. It is a lot of hard work. You know, the stupid thing is with it though is it's not. It's actually like a lot of it is total instinct. We yeah. don't even realise yeah, that you're doing it. Absolutely. And we use this every day yeah. to make any decisions. And it's not until you actually, yeah, it's not until you understand that instinctive decision-making process is actually a process. And you can then, once mm. you realise that there are things backing up that process, then you can understand it a bit more. Yeah. And it's absolutely fascinating. And so I was at uni last week, whenever it was, talking about human rights. Mm-hmm. And everyone goes, yeah, human rights, brilliant. 
everyone's good for human rights. We want human rights. We want more human rights. Yeah. And then our um, our tutor said, "Well, I'm not massively, not massively pro human rights. Actually, and everyone just went, what? Not pro human rights? He's like, well, why is that? And he said, well, actually, if you look at the way that human rights are, the Human Rights Act was initially set up after World War Two by a load of middle class men in New York, and the idea of human rights is very much centered on what a white middle class man." thinks is the right thing to do. And the argument he was making was that actually in some cultures around the world, what is uh, the done thing in their culture is that, for example, is as you grow up, one of the things you do is you kill your parents and you eat them. And that's the accepted cultural thing to Isn't do. Isn't one of the reasons for that because you'd rather that they're warm and close to you and giving you something back? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's essentially a sign of res- yeah. It's essentially a sign of respect, mm. and the the actually fairly valid point is: who are we to impose our system of rights, whatever they may be, onto people that don't necessarily expect to have those rights? Or you could argue: why are humans? so important to have our own set of rights why don't we extend exactly those other rights to other animals well there's been that little wasn't there a bit of a debate about that with that um selfie of the oh yeah monkey monkey, yeah with peter that that is yeah well yeah so maybe human rights as they are now written down in a list if you will Mm. aren't ideal but the principle of it. Yeah, exactly. The principle is fine. But in order to have a principle, you have to have something written down. And maybe... So that might need moderni- modernizing or... Yeah, and maybe a group of white men rethinking. in America <laughs> weren't, the, weren't the right people to be doing that. I don't know. It's confusing. But how would that um, change if, say, we had a much more diverse selection of people, like regarding, say, whether that be... UK based or European Court of Human Rights or or in America in the US how would that change I mean granted all those societies are largely run by white middle class men mm. yeah but that kind of means that socially over the past 50 60 years we have been brought up to adhere to those beliefs so we have, in that case yes. In that case, how can we change that? It's like almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Precisely. Precisely yeah. right. Mm. So what? who is to say that adding, say, I don't know, someone who is uh, ethnically Pakistani or, um, I don't know, someone from Jamaica, a Jamaican mm-hmm. woman coming over, mm-hmm. uh, who's over here, second gen- generation, third generation, who's to say that actually those people are going to change the Human Rights Act in any way for, as far as the UK can, is concerned, as far as the EU is concerned? And I I I understand maybe we shouldn't be imposing those human rights on other people, but at the same time, also in that example, in that specific example, hmm. would human rights stop those people doing that? Mm. That's a very good question, Haley. So there there are three ways to look at rights hmm. and human rights in particular. There are absolute rights, which are rights which should never be violated ever, hmm. ever, ever. There are limited rights, 
which are rights that can be violated in limited circumstances, and there are qualified rights, which are rights that must be balanced against the demands of and respect for other rights. Right. Okay. okay. So I'm going to read you out the main 12 rights in the Human Rights Act. Okay. Okay. You ready? You're going to, yeah. You are going to tell me whether they are absolute rights which you can't violate. Write this down. Okay. Oh no, it's a quiz. Limited, quiz. limited rights which can be violated in limited circumstances or qualified rights which must be balanced against the demands of and respect for other rights. Okay. Okay. You got that? Can we Google? No, no. <laughs> yeah, you can and you'll get about a gazillion answers. Okay. The right to life is in the Human Rights Act 1998. Is the answer that there isn't any answer here? It's all of these are the answers. So, <laughs> because option D, all of the above. <laughs> and none of the above. Because that, I mean, the instinct is to say, yes, that's an absolute right. Or is it? I mean, my own personal ethics would probably suggest that that is the case but if you were someone who agreed with the death penalty for example mm -hmm. however you could extend that as, as well to abortion exactly yeah, that. Also, yep. yeah. and then end yeah. of life as well so so again. that's certainly not an absolute right there is that what we're saying no it's not i mean i take oh. that in no no it's not i suppose my deep theory is you have as much right as anyone else to wander around and not be killed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then also, that's only one rabbit hole of that, right? Yep. And there are others. Yeah, these, these, the thing is with rights is they're a bit, they're not specific. They're quite expansive yeah. and quite broad, which means they can be interpreted in, in, in a number of ways. ways. Yeah. yeah. So the right to life is a bit questionable, is what you're saying. Good, I'm glad we got to that. Good. <laughs> Next, um, prohibition of torture. I mean, generally, torture is not that good. I would, I'm going to say it's not great, is it? I it's not great. Go down the absolute right. <laughs> yeah, there. I think. Yeah. I, yeah. Because it doesn't work either, does it? So there aren't circumstances where you yeah, can justify no evidence it. for it actually working. No. Okay. So, as a general rule, you're saying that prohibition of torture is an absolute right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. Okay. Alex. God. Next to me, I've got your wife. Right. And if you don't tell me where that bomb is, I am going to shoot her now. Okay. <laughs> That's his response. <laughs> Very calm. Okay. Right. right. Um, However, the only way that you can stop me from doing this is to get someone in and send someone in and torture me. Is prohibition of torture still an absolute human right? I can't. Ignoring the fact that I can't see a situation where that could possibly be no, the case. It's, it's, because it's, because yeah, you could quite easily smack someone down or shoot them. You'd be more in likely that to shoot someone. Exactly. You wouldn't want to talk. That, that, that isn't actually a, a plausible situation in my mind. So sorry, no. <laughs> okay, try again, let's, sellers. Okay, let's try. Let's try and. Um, I'm trying to think of a a, a a situation where you've got a loved one. Yeah. Say, say your wife. Your wife has been kidnapped. Right, Alex. Um, I am one of the group that has kidnapped you. I am next to you there. And I'm not going to tell you where it is. However, 
Um, you've got 30 minutes before she's murdered. And I'm the only person that can possibly tell you, and unless you torture me, I will not speak. And it's your wife or a family member. Mm. And they will die, and they will die a horrible, painful death, slowly. <laughs> you can this edit most of this out, obviously. <laughs> Don't have nightmares. I, Do you sleep well? I, th- I, th- I think I may need to leave a lot of this in, actually. <laughs> the dark mind. This um, is where I get struck off, isn't it? This is this is it. This is the final. This is straw. it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a. It's a very good question. Mm. But the point I'm trying to make is you can see that even in that absolute right, the prohibition of torture that I agree and we all agree is is an absolute right. We shouldn't break that. Mm. There are potential circumstances where some people may go, actually, yes, get on and do that. I mean, mm. I feel like it's, it's obviously a thing in like films and stuff like that that people do mm-hmm. give it up through but the thing is what what is to stop that person just saying oh yeah she's in Any the car shit. park yeah oh exactly yeah just to get it to stop mm. and actually they're lying so exactly it doesn't get the truth out of people you're far, you're far too it? rational for this yeah i'd be like oh let me hang on let me just check the evidence let me just check the evidence of what but what best to do here oh no look <laughs> A Cochrane review states that. <laughs> and then nice. they'll be like, right, you're 30 minutes is up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. Prohibition of slavery and forced labour. So... Oh, God, how can you argue this one to be to be ethical? I... Because this is now what, what I'm tr- now what I'm thinking. Yeah how how can you how can you twist this round, Alex, so that yeah. uh, slavery and forced labour is an ethical thing to do? I mean, I don't like carrying my own bags. <laughs> <clears throat> is this going to be? I'm joking. <laughs> is this going to be something to do with? Except when there's a war on. Um, I don't know. Actually, yes, that <laughs> like 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 conscription, for example, you could be classed as forced labour. It could be. Can also um, uh, chain gangs, that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. I think in the, I would be inclined to say, as far as chain gangs go, yeah, that's forced labour. It probably is forced labour. It isn't is it? forced labour. Technically, it's forced labour. <sighs> this comes down to jail time, though. You're withdrawing certain people rights, aren't you? So yes, I suppose you're reducing your rights, aren't you? So therefore, it can't be an absolute right. No, but also, it's a, a right that can be modified. Mm-hmm. Could you could you make an argument that? Um, you're starting to sound like me. I know, I know. <laughs> so in a chain gang, t- gang type situation or work in prisons or whatever, you may be gaining skills. Even if it's like ridiculous menial work, you may be gain- gaining the skill of like going to work at a particular time mm-hmm. and working for X number of hours. But the- so it could benefit benefit you. You could, but you're still you're still um intrinsically breaking that right, aren't you? You are you are modifying that right. You could extrapolate that even further and, and class uh the education of children as being forced labour. Okay, yeah, you could so, <laughs> yes. so yeah. um but that is okay, go for it, yeah. <laughs> so you know that yeah, I, I don't see Again, I think you're right. It's it's limited based mm. on age, status, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Okay, yeah. Um, rights to liberty and security. Unless you're banged up for a crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
That's a good one. Uh, right to a fair trial. I can't see how you can. Yeah. No, I think that, that, that is well, that's got to be absolutely. Yeah, that's sure. I think that has You'd to be. think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, fairly absolutely. In practice, whether or not that actually happens oh, is yeah, a different thing. Yes, but as yeah, a right be- to a fair human. trial, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. then absolutely. Yeah. Okay. No punishment without law. I am of the general opinion that laws are so heavily entrenched in uh, the social structure of whatever country you live in that it's just that's such a very difficult one to. And also, what what about crimes that there aren't laws to fit? Yeah, this is it. But that's what that happens at the moment, though, isn't it? The, Absolutely. At yeah. times, yeah. retro. I'm uh, say like. Up until about five, ten years ago, there weren't a lot of laws regarding cybersecurity. Yeah, like that. yeah. even yeah. then, yeah. like they're they're generally retrofitted to other laws. Mm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and things like um, if you're accused of um, downloading child porn, for example, the the charge is production of that material, isn't it, rather than access to? I think. Yeah. So it doesn't quite fit the crime in certain ways. It's yeah. not quite the the wheels of the law are very slowly turning, aren't they? Mm. Which is understandable. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, if you take it under a, a social sort of construct as well, like I said, like um, drug laws, for example. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes those laws aren't actually implemented perhaps as strongly as the law says they should be. And in other countries, mm-hmm. that you know, that there's very different moral feelings about drugs generally so it's it's very interesting sorry carry on um right to respect uh yes sorry right to respect for private and family life oh Uh, this is hard i think i think i think people should should have the right to the to privacy yes Absolute right. No, you have broken the law. You are a sex offender. Are you allowed a right to keep that private? No. Again, this comes down <laughs> that makes to you sound so dejected. No, it's, 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 it comes down to though that, that this. If you've broken the law in the first place, if you have done mm. wrong, yes. Then yes. a lot of these rights have to be modified they're because quali- they're, they're almost all going to be qualifiable, aren't they? Yeah, precisely. Uh, because hard, yeah. it's down comes down to this is your punishment essentially. Yep. Unless we want to abolish punishment. My mind immediately jumped to Trump <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> doesn't it always, Haley? Doesn't it always? <laughs> I think there are certain circumstances where um the way that you live your everyday life are important in terms of what you do for a job or a living or yeah if um, if you're if you're in a position where your private and family life is going to influence a lot of people or you know it's, yeah. it potentially puts people in danger then yeah actually yeah that that right is diminished to a certain mm. extent we're nearly done okay mm. uh, freedom of thought conscience and religion i think i mean yeah, but <laughs> I'm both thinking. <laughs> so basically, can we have another category that's called "Yeah, but"? Yeah, but yeah, and we will put pretty much all of them except for the uh, the trial one in that one. I think so far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can see where 
then may people may draw a line with that. Mm. If your if your thoughts or your religion is considered dangerous for whatever or the way that yeah. you exp- yeah yeah you, you express that, then um, some people may argue that actually that right is is possibly something that can be broken. And religion, particularly, can also impact on other rights. Absolutely, mm. yes. Too. Yeah. So I'm thinking of Sharia law or um, Jehovah's Witnesses refusing blood products. Mm. That sort of thing. Mm. Not necessarily for themselves, but for maybe a minor or yes, whatever. Yes, exactly that, yeah. There are legal... The- legal um precedence with that kind of thing though and there is a yeah. there's a way to sort of fix it um and that moves on nicely to the next one which is freedom of expression which is kind of a, a similar kind of thing isn't mm. it? depending on uh what that expression may uh, how that may impinge on other people um, after that there's freedom of assembly and association which is kind of the same thing really, yeah. again isn't yeah. it yeah a lot of these are the same thing just looked at from a very slightly different perspective. Mm-hmm. And you can see where actually sometimes you might want to limit assembly and you might want to limit association. Yeah. Uh, last two then, uh, rights to marry. I this mean, is an odd one, yes. That's what? Okay. Yeah, right to marry adults? is a, is a, yeah, sure. a human Should... right um, from 1998. The right to marry has been a human right. Okay. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is because... Multiple countries have been and still are denying huge swathes of the population their right to marry. Mm-hmm. Including our country for quite a, a lot yep. of the time, actually. Yeah. I guess the exception is based on age more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, you'd think so. Yeah. Last one then. Prohibition on discrimination. Discrimination in what? Yes. Uh, yeah, so 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 wise and That's vague. Such a general term. <laughs> it is, isn't it? And and is is a highly sub- sub- subjective term as well, discrimination. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Highly, yeah. you know, because can, can you bake that gay cake? Well, indeed. Yes. Um are you allowed to do a stand-up sketch about I don't know, a specific person or not? Do you class that as discrimination or But then again, where's your freedom of expression? Mm. Yes. Also, what about potential for positive discrimination? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't specify yeah. positive yeah. or negative. It just says discrimination. So positive discrimination can be a, a a thing as well, can't it? Yeah. So you can see how how these human rights interact with each other kind of just diminishes each each of them. Yeah. And how they're so vague that they don't necessarily mean a great deal. So you can see how some people could quite successfully produce an argument against the Human Rights Act, for yeah. example. I probably wouldn't, personally. I'd probably say that it just needs... Tweaking. Oh, yes. I'm one. I'm a good one for a guideline. I like a guideline. I like producing guidelines. Yeah, <laughs> I like yeah. a guideline, too. <laughs> I like a guideline to follow, yeah. yeah. But very similar, aren't we, Hayley? The healthcare professionals <laughs> like, to, like to work to a guideline. And I think that if you can have more more rigorous sort of control over these sort of things, that's a better thing. But that then wouldn't be the Human Rights Act, would it? It'd be our version of Human Rights Act, the last mm. Tuesday Act, which would be a terrible act. Yeah. Oh, God. We, we've we've tried to do that a few times in the Got past. That's the human bit, for cats. <laughs> the Cat Right Act. The Pets Act. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was um, I was going to talk about the trolley problem. <laughs> Do you know the trolley problem? No, I don't. Okay, so the trolley problem is, um, you are stood by a set of points on a railway line. Mm-hmm. You can see a, uh, a a wagon from a train coming towards you down this railway line. Yeah, there's no one on the train. You can't stop it. There are only two things you can do. You can do nothing, and if you do nothing, there's five people on the track. Yeah. Those five people are going to die. Yeah. Okay? Or you can move the points, and that will um, change the direction of the trolley, the wagon, and one person will die who is sat on the track. You cannot warn these people. You have to make the decision. In action, five people die. Action, one person dies. I see, so this is that's that's the, the trolley good. problem. So yeah, mm. this is this is what do you do? Do you do you from a utilitarian point of view? Yeah. it's quite simple. You pull the the points, and one person dies. Then, but from a uh, say a a more a Kantish behavior, mm-hmm. um, you cannot act to kill someone. Yeah, so you do nothing. Five yeah. people die. You could class your inaction as an act, though. Yes, you so. could. Yeah, you could. And this is the sort of thing that's going to have to come into play when we're talking about autonomous vehicles, because eventually they're going to have to choose between killing one person or killing another mm. person. And as soon as, as soon as, well, it's already happened with the the death. Um, yeah. Was it the Uber self driving car? Um, as soon as that happens, the Daily Mail are going to have a field day, and self driving cars are going to kill people. Whereas actually, from what we see from all the technology and all the research is that they're probably a lot safer. They can make decisions a lot quicker and they can make decisions more reliably, but mm-hmm. the AML says that they're going to kill people. Yes. Hayley, you had a particular ethical question you wanted to talk about. So this is a question um, that I used to round off my training sessions with. And I think it'd be really interesting to hear what you guys come up with as well okay. on it. So in this situation, you're a pharmacist mm-hmm. and so you're approached by someone who says, um, I'm really worried about my boyfriend. I was staying over at his house and I found some medicine packets and he hasn't said that he's got anything wrong with him, but I'm really scared that there's something really wrong with him. Can you tell me what they are? So at that point... What do you guys say? Do you tell it like are you like, oh sure, just tell me what they are and I'll or are you like, hell no, I'm not gonna tell you that because that's that person's private medical information. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Um I'm assuming we are ignoring the fact that most of this information is probably public domain by a quick Google search that That is almost invariably the very first thing that someone says yeah yeah hmm. so there is another part to this question okay because so it's it's set in the 70s <laughs> <laughs> so the other part is that before you can say to a because I, in my i think that the answer to that is quite clear that that is like from a confidentiality point of view no you can't go ahead hmm. and just tell someone else like what but before you get to say that to her she reads off she says she tells you what the names of the medicines are mm-hmm. and you recognize them straight away as antiretroviral drugs used for hiv mm. 
Oh. Ah, now that's different. There is legal precedent for that. Sorry, <laughs> this um, is this is a real inquiry that yeah. has happened as well. Oh, by the way, so I, in that case, I would suggest um, Alex. Alex, what would your suggestion be? Actually, from the the non medical professional point of view, I think. Well, it's a bit late now because you've told me that there's a legal precedent for it. There is but, a legal precedent for it. Yes, yeah. mm, what, I no, think I mean, from 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 a, not only from if you're a GP. Yeah. Okay. And this is very much an information only side. And actually the situation in which I was teaching and in which this inquiry came up was through a telephone line. Okay. That is pretty much almost in, like when I was tra- training people, there'd be silence for a while. Then someone would say, but it's all on Google. Mm-hmm. And, and then a go, discussion aha, would come off yes, that. Yeah. So we're following a distinctive pattern then. That's nice to know we're so predictable. (laughs) And then people would say, well, go ahead, go ahead. I I think, yeah, given that situation, because someone is putting someone else's life at risk, I don't know. I mean, can you say you need to go and speak to your boyfriend now? Is even saying that Yeah, saying that there's something going on. I mean, there is, like, people would always look at me and be like, well, what's the answer? Yeah. And the point is, there is no answer to it. So, the two opposing things, I suppose, are that that boyfriend has a right to confidentiality and you don't talk about other people's medication or their mm. illnesses or whatever to other people without that person's consent, and he's not there. And he's obviously not told her yeah. as well, because that's what she's asking about. Um, There is a potential harm to her. Yeah. So it you could totally justify saying, look, this is what it's for. But also... It may be that he's in the early stages or he's suppressed, so he's not actually putting her in any harm mm-hmm. if he's taking the medicines correctly and his viral lo- load is low enough. Yeah. Oftentimes people would say that, no, you wouldn't tell them, but they tell them to use protection if they have sex. Oh, no. Which is pretty yes. much telling them. So, yeah, pretty much, isn't it? Um, or they'd say, no, but go and talk to them. And I think... I would probably err towards that. I'd probably say, look, I'm not able to tell you, but it's something that really should sit down with your boyfriend and discuss. Yeah. And what's who's to say that they're not using protection or anything and he could be being completely safe? Like, there's no way of knowing that. And there was this, there was always invariably the discussion of, but she could just Google it. Yeah. And there is something of an argument about information that's out in the public domain already but i would always say but as a healthcare professional the information that we're giving is different to it just being plainly available on google because it carries some extra weight and they've come to you for advice so they obviously and also um, you don't know the specific circumstances of the case exactly. some medications are used for a very many different um reasons mm. Um, some are used off license. How would that change, though, if the patient hadn't told the phone line that these were medications for her boyfriend that she was worried and that she just said, 
I would like to know some information about these medications. What can you tell me about them? You'd answer it? Yeah, of course you would, yeah. That came up a few times as well. Tell it to mm. hang up and say that it's hers. So from my point of view, I think what, what I would say is, I'm afraid I can't discuss other people's confidential medical issues with anyone apart from themselves. Mm-hmm. However, if you have concerns, I would suggest you either talk to said person or talk to your GP. Yeah. Yep. And the, the legal precedent, I think, uh, one of the, there's only a number of times that a GP can break patient confidentiality. And from what I remember, one of them is if um, you both see one GP, you and your partner see at the same GP, and one of you will not disclose HIV positive status to the partner. I believe. Yeah. I think that's right. I think there's a, a I think a that's case. probably right. But it is only it's only a GP that can do it. I can do it as a as I definitely can do it as a dentist. Haley can do it as, as a pharmacist. Um, it's very much your or your family doctor that can do it, and that's it. Yeah. There was always some discussion about context as well, and mm-hmm. um, the time when you would want to hear that news. Yes, probably not. On the so end of probably a phone not line, in. No. Yeah, not yeah, off true. the phone, and not in the middle of no. a busy supermarket pharmacy no. with like other. Um, yeah, definitely not in in your Tesco pharmacy. It's probably not. <laughs> idea, yeah. Hearing that news, and then him potentially having to explain that you know is it i don't know just to, just hearing that from such an informal setting whereas if yeah. you're in a gp setting you may have more of a relationship with the gp you may feel a bit you're definitely going to be in a separate room which you could be in a community pharmacy as well but you could you'd be in a much more supportive environment i think than mm-hmm. a quick sort of the fast-paced pharmacy or dentistry environment i mean imagine your dentist saying that like as if it's as if dental oh, surgery way, isn't bad enough but i always i always used to love asking that question because the range and the thought processes and you can literally see people going through the, the thought Absolutely, processes yeah. and i'd say to them uh you know sometimes these are people with no medical background as well yeah. Or he would be practicing for a very long time and sort of all the theory of medical practice was, was way behind them. Mm-hmm. So you'd say to them, oh, now we're going to talk about ethics. And they'd go, oh. And I'd say to them, you've just done, you've, you've just done everything that we've discussed. Like you've just put every theory into yeah. practice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And at the end they'd still be like, Yeah, but what's the right answer? And I'd be like, No, it what's like, your no, it right doesn't answer? Work like that. It doesn't work like that. There's no right answer. <laughs> there are lots of wrong answers. There are lots of right answers. Yeah, there are so no many ways what, to go yeah. around it. There's so many things mm. to think about. But mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay, last thing then. So we do this um yeah. do this homeopathy on the AHS just for fun. Yeah. Okay. So um you're both avid supporters of homeopathy. Actually we should we should um emphasize that we don't really want the homeopathy on the NHS, we're just being devil's advocate for this. We are I, I, I for one am quite supportive of taking homeopathy off the NHS in any way, shape yeah. or form. But it's it's quite a good thought experiment. Thought experiment. Yeah, we're all yeah. active in the sphere of skepticism yes. and science promotion and Critical Promoting thinking, evidence based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, critical thinking. I, yeah. I, I, I prefer. I, I definitely prefer that. Uh, yeah, the um, science promotion idea of it. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so if we've got we've got our four principles: um, mm-hmm. patient autonomy, respect for patient autonomy, 
um, non-maleficence, beneficence, justice. Um, you're pretend now you're both supporters of homeopathy. <laughs> I know, I know, this is difficult. Okay. <laughs> And uh, and and it's been suggested that homeopathy should be taken off the NHS. Um, it's, a, it's an outrage. It, it's it's terrible, isn't it? It works so well. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> so, Hello, Daily Mail. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, who's uh, Richard Littlejohn? We'll get Littlejohn to write. A oh God, his, yes. Uh, this is an outrage. Patients love this stuff. Okay, let's. So we start with beneficence because it's quite interesting, isn't it? So, what question? What, though. Yeah, got them. If we are homeopathy supporters, yep. are we the sort of homeopathy supporters who get given it and don't really know what it is, or are we full-on homeopath people we who merchants. know exactly what it is? Yeah, yeah. Brown bags. Brown bags. Of, of yeah. yeah. I don't know. Well, we could work through that, couldn't we? We'll have a think yeah. about that, yeah, from, okay. from both kind of points of view. Let's look at it from uh, beneficence. So the benefits that homeopathy does. So does it does it make you better? The holistic approach yeah. of homeopathy mm-hmm. may provide some benefits. So you may feel better. You may feel better. You may feel better. That's that's you a, will be, a way of putting it, isn't it? If you go to an actual homeopath anyway, you will feel listened to. Yep. You will have a nice chat with someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who will take interest in your whole being? Yep, which will be of benefit. But it won't. It won't actually make you better. Let's be honest with that. It's not going to make you. It's not going to cure your disease. Uh, depends what you're going for. Okay. Okay. So, so there there may be some kind of benefit there from, for the patient. Yeah. Okay. And from a cost point of view, actually, the the funding for homeopathy is let's say it's a hundred thousand pounds throughout the UK per year. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much. You could say it's almost homeopathic. <laughs> oh God, I need to, I need to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a very low spend on homeopathy. The NHS yeah. spends so much money on drugs that have limited benefit. Yeah. The, the or don't have a very good evidence base for them. Mm-hmm. So why shouldn't they spend it on homeopathy? Homeopathy is purely a drop in the ocean, after all. Yes, exactly, yes. <laughs> so from a justice point of view, is it right, is it a just thing that homeopathy should be singled out for this? No, no, it's not. And to be to be fair, it's not the only thing that's been singled out for this. I could say, no, it's but, really not. But it, but it is one of the main... So there are concerted efforts by people to specifically ban homeopathy yes and again i'm saying that from one of those people that probably supports those concerted efforts <laughs> but, but yes. from an ethical point of view is it is it just is it right that homeopathy is singled out for that even though we have agreed that there is some benefit to some people are we speaking as ourselves now yeah. no we're speaking as the homeopathy supporter to start oh, with god <laughs> um no, my devil's because, advocate hat on <laughs> because because it's been used for over two hundred years, mm-hmm. so people, so that many people can't be wrong. Oh god, that's so okay. painful to hear. But yeah, so um. uh, here's here's another way of looking at the justice angle. Um, so one of the ways that um, homeopathy has been re- removed from the NHS is by the use of judicial reviews. Um, how expensive are those judicial reviews to the NHS and to the taxpayer? So is this an appropriate uh. use of ta- taxpayers' money? 
not only not only that compared to the spend on homeopathy how what's the what's the the difference what is the actual spend mm-hmm. in comparison i don't know i don't know i haven't got the figures i know a man that might have but <laughs> it, it would be it'd be interesting another interesting thought experiment to see from a devil advocate's point of view how much is being spent on stopping homeopathy on the AHS and how much homeopathy on the AHS that would fund. At some point, though, surely... The, oh, no, no, I'm not. I'm arguing from the wrong point. Yeah, that's it's going to balance out. But. Oh, yes, you, no, you would. Yes, you, no, you're quite right. It, it would eventually. But then then the argument would be, actually, if that if it balances out in six months, fine, not a problem. That's yeah. not an issue. If it balances out in 20 years, mm-hmm. then that's a slightly different argument, isn't it? How much does the NHS spend on adverse effects of medicines that are given people whereas with homeopathy you don't get any of those adverse you get effects. no effects yes <laughs> yes exactly right exactly right the other thing about justice you could say that by banning um homeopathy nhs um you are restricting people's ability to get homeopathy now i don't think that's a particularly good argument i have to say because people are still able to get homeopathy Mm-hmm. Yep. They just have to pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, as far as I'm aware, going to see a homeopath isn't all that expensive. And let's be honest, the mo- the majority of people that seek homeopathy aren't your working class people on benefits. They exactly. are people absolutely. that have yeah. various yep. middle class incomes and that kind of thing. So for, that's a weak argument in, in my And they can opinion. walk yeah. into Boots or Holland and Barrett and yeah. quite yeah, yeah. easily pick yeah, yeah. up a bottle. Yeah. Non-maleficence, doing no harm. What's the harm dot net? <laughs> um, <laughs> as someone who's written an entire blog series and done several <laughs> sketches in the book talks Absolutely. about homeopathy, yes. where's the harm? Um, this is really... So homeopathy is very safe. There's nothing in it. So it can't cause any problems at all. And now honest. As, as, as your pharma- put your pharmacist head back on. My pharmacist head says that there is... Um, there is evidence that there are actually some adverse effects from homeopathic products, despite how crazy that sounds. Um, there's several reviews which suggest that there are. The main harm, though, is in not seeking actual effective medicine mm-hmm. for serious diseases or for diseases that could very easily be treated otherwise. There are various other rabbit holes that have been down um about some advice about interactions mm. so homeopathy supposedly doesn't work with steroids for example and then people can like stop taking medicine that is helpful for them mm. because of homeopathy a, these are claims rather there was than a, evidence yeah there was a case a few years ago when i think a, a diabetic died diabetic person died because they stopped taking their insulin and just relied on mm. on sugar pills which is a little bit ironic yeah. um, <laughs> part of that isn't isn't the homeop- homeopathy itself though it's about the advice that yes. comes yes. with it yeah, yeah yeah and the lack of regulation yeah there's mm-hmm. the risk of is it being advice? badly prepared for example perhaps not yeah. as dilute yes. as yeah. yes and there was the big was it the nelson's um, incident where the FDA went into Nelson's and found that yeah. the the comical way in which homeopathy was being made and that kind of thing. Babies have literally been harmed from that exact thing in the US. So um, 
I think it was Highlands Teething Powder. They oh, yeah. something went wrong in the manufacturing process, and and they, there was something in it. Yeah, 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 something quite highly toxic. Yeah. Good job. So, yeah. Okay, so let's let's look at the big one then: patient autonomy, respect for patient autonomy. And we know that all our principles are equal, but patient autonomy is potentially just that one equal. Patients higher. should have the right to be able to pick the treatment that is best suited to them. Yes. In their, in their own minds, given own the mind. facts and the figures, and if there's a treatment option available that they want to go down, theoretically, yeah. patients should be able to choose of their own free will which option that is. Patients have done their own research by reading the Daily Mail and Natural News. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so watching YouTube. What doctors don't tell you. So, so the question is, if you're a patient and you want to go for homeopathy, do you, as a healthcare professional, say, actually your auton- autonomy is more important, go for your life, knock yourself out, have some sugar pills? Or do you go down that old paternalistic route and say, nope, this is this is not for you. This is the wrong thing to be doing. I'm saying this cannot happen. So I've sold homeopathy over the counter before. Mm-hmm. I've bought homeopathy over the counter before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm taking a lot of it um, So the approach that I use is probably, I would say, some soft paternalism. Mm-hmm. So I would say to them, I wouldn't be like, oh, do you know what this is? But I'd kind of conversationally ask them whether they knew about mm. the principles of homeopathy. Okay. Oftentimes, in fact, I would say, out of all the homeopathy sales that I've made, probably 90% of them say, well, it's just herbal medicines, isn't it? It's natural. <sighs> so, yeah, mm. that's quite and common then- in America, I think. Yeah. As I was usually taking them to the home to the medicine because it's not actually in the pharmacy, would then just have a chat on with them about what it actually is. And I'd say, Oh no, you know, it's like extreme dilution, so it means that there's no actual arnica in the arnica product that you're after, because it was invariably arnica that they'd be after. So I would just sort of give them a very quick brief rundown of what it was. Mm-hmm. And I'd say most of the time they'd then go, Oh, oh. And it's like six quid. Uh, no, I'll leave it. Mm. I would then argue actually what you've done there is um, given them uh, more information and increase their autonomy rather than necessarily yeah. mm-hmm. um, uh, decreasing their autonomy. So there were, even after that, there were people who were like, okay, but I'll still give it a go. I'll still try it. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, sure. Okay. Yep, if you like. And I'd think, I've done my job here. I've given the information that I need to. I feel like I've given the information that's required to make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd feel worse selling it and knowing that they thought it was just herbal medicine. Yes. Yeah. 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 And actually, you wouldn't necessarily be fulfilling your duty of care to that patient, would you? Yeah. So that's how I justify selling it. On the occasion, but as I say, in most cases, they do kind of go, wait, what? Mm, That's mm. crazy. I'm not spending money on that. <laughs> but there are still people who will, and that's mm. totally fine. So do we think that homeopathy should be withdrawn from NHS funding or not? Given, given, given a slightly different ethical take on it. I'm going to say yes, still. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can't, of course it should. Of course it should. I can't, I can't <laughs> see any going around it. It would be very different if it was herbal medicine, say. It would also be very different if you were saying ban homeopathy. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. I think that because there is that just sheer lack of plausibility yeah. in homeopathy, it makes it a bit of a special case. Mm-hmm. And I think, actually, that homeopathy shouldn't be available in pharmacies. It can be available in Holland and Barrett or wherever, but I don't think it should be yeah, so, available in pharmacies. So putting it next to actual medicine legitimizes it, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. I, yeah, I fairly passionately feel that. Yeah, I think but that's not saying ban it. That's saying yeah. move it into health food shops. Yeah. Yeah. The other alternative to that, though, is then if that's the case... I don't get to have those conversations with people who then change their yeah, mind. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and then also you get the fact that health food shops aren't necessarily going to have any professionals in there talking about homeopathy, and they're they're not necessarily going to be as well regulated as your pharmacy. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the advice that they normally give to people, well, that I've come across, is here buy this forty pound pack of tablets. Then absolutely. go and ask and see whether or not you can take it with your medicines. Yeah, absolutely. Which a lot of the time you can't. Yeah, I I have been into um, a famous, well-known health food shop to buy um, various medications while giving the symptoms of having a brain tumour. Oh. <laughs> just, just a migraine, have some of this magic herb. Which is probably a little bit of a dishonest thing to do, but it's again, it's an interesting little experiment to see mm. whether they even point you in the direction of a medical professional, which mm-hmm. they had absolutely no chance. Um, excellent. I think that's probably enough for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. think? Thank you very much. I hope that's been interesting. Yeah, it has. Yeah, really good. Yes. Thank you very much. Right, Thank you. Bye. Bye. ethics done and dusted really Colin and I will resume our regular chit chat on our next episode which will be out in the coming weeks in the meantime don't forget to spread the word and if you like what we're doing feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use you can always contact us on email at info at incisivedecisive.com follow us on Twitter at incisivepod or find us on Facebook by searching for Incisive Decisive if you liked that taste of the last Tuesday project then there are over two years of old episodes to work your way through at lasttuesdayproject.com. The incisive, decisive music is provided by Gallops, and the Last Tuesday Project's music comes courtesy of Strong for Life. I think that's all I need to say, so Colin and I will see you on the next Incisive Decisive.